The following program was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. American citizens have the right to be provided work so that they can support their families decently and properly. Now is the time to fight, to fight for the best interests of our city, and we have public housing was finally recognized as a proper function of government. It's not done by speeches. The LaGuardia Archives at LaGuardia Community College of the City University of New York presents The Dreamer and the Doer, The Life and Work of Fiorello LaGuardia, with narrator Tony LoBianco. progress has ever been made in any branch of science or in any activity as has been made in aviation during the past 21 years. What is contemplated, I believe, is almost challenges the imagination, both as to size of planes, as to speed, as well as safe. March 1940. At the airport that bears his name, Fiorella LaGuardia speaks on the 21st anniversary of the first transcontinental service operated by United Airlines. Fiorella's comments on the past and the future of flight was not simply idle talk by another politician. As an aviator in World War I, he witnessed the airplane begin to play an important role in warfare. As a congressman, he was an enthusiastic supporter of domestic air travel. And as mayor, he not only promoted and supervised the building of LaGuardia Airport, he contemplated a larger international airport, today's JFK. Ernest Cuneo was an aide to LaGuardia. When the Port of New York Authority opened its vast depot in New York to take whole freight trains inside, I wrote a little speech for him. And what he looked at and wasn't uh, particularly impressed, but he said, I'll take it along. When he rose to congratulate them on this new railroad t t terminal, the first day open, he offered it his condolences because he said, this is obsolete. Everything's going to be moving by air. The modern age of flight began in December 1903, when Orville Wright piloted an odd-looking biplane above the sand dunes at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. The achievement represented years of effort by Orville and his brother Wilbur, but neither inventor seemed at all amazed when their plane finally left the ground. With characteristic understatement, Orville later wrote, We had faith in our calculations and felt so sure we were going to fly that when we succeeded, we were not surprised. In fact, I had gotten more kick out of flying before I had ever been in the air while lying in bed thinking of how exciting it would be. For most Americans, manned flight and heavier-than-air vehicles seemed miraculous. A few years after Kitty Hawk, when Orville Wright conducted a series of tests on a new plane he and his brother had designed for the Army, thousands of spectators were on hand to watch.
Fiorello LaGuardia had a photograph of these tests, one of the many in his large collection of aviation historic milestones. Perhaps he also stood among the crowds in New York City who watched Wilbur Wright pilot the plane around the Statue of Liberty in 1909. Three years later, Fiorello became associated with another aviation pioneer, Giuseppe Balancia, serving as legal counsel and director of Balancia's airplane company. In 1913, when Balancia opened a flying school in Mineola, Long Island, Fiorello decided to take lessons. Meanwhile, in Europe, the airplane was already playing a far different role. As vast armies struggled against each other in the trenches of World War I, airplanes flew overhead, reconnaissance missions and bombing raids. In 1917, when America finally entered the war, LaGuardia, then a freshman congressman, enlisted in the aviation section of the Army's Signal Corps. Walter Wanger, later a Hollywood film producer, remembered serving with LaGuardia in Europe. We were in probably the safest place in Europe, the uh, Italian training camp at Foggia. Foggia was a, a pretty unattractive place at the time, and there were a lot of political problems involved. And in all of these political and propaganda matters, LaGuardia was of great service because he was an Italian and knew how to handle things. Incidentally, LaGuardia uh, really ran his own war, uh, interpreting the uh, all the rules and regulations as he saw fit, and he was usually right. As America mobilized for war, most of the aviators, including Fiorello himself, received little training before they were sent overseas. Years later, LaGuardia recalled his aviation experience in the Great War. During the last war, our youngsters were sent to the front with eight and ten hours the air. I had eight hours when I went. We carried about 600, 650 pounds bombs, three motors with a total horsepower of 450 horses. And we thought we were power. We went out about 90 miles an hour and came home after dropping the bombs about 110, 150 had a radius about two hours or two hours and a quarter, two hours and 20 minutes. And we thought we were flying. We were flying like birds, too. <laughs> we just had to watch that plane every minute at a time. By his own admission, Fiorello was never a skillful pilot. He often functioned as a bombardier. And one night, he almost lost his life in a raid behind enemy lines. In addition to the inherent dangers in aerial warfare, the planes themselves were often poorly designed and caused many unnecessary deaths. Fiorello was successful at keeping at least one of these aircraft, the SIA training plane, out of the Italian theater of war. Ernest Cunio, a former LaGuardia aide, explains. When there was iniquity, the Caproni plane was crashing, and he ordered it grounded and he canceled the contract. $500 million contract. He said he saw a Pershing. He got summoned up to Chaumont. And there, General Pershing, and I give it to you verbatim what he told me, General Pershing said to him, by just what authority do you imagine that you have the right to cancel a $500 million contract of an ally? And LaGuardia said, by the same authority you have, 
I am sworn to protect the lives of my men, and they are flying coffins. By the time the war ended, Fiorello attained the rank of major, a title associates would use when addressing him throughout his political career. He also came home a hero, historian Arthur Mann. By any standards, he had a brilliant war record, and what is equally important, a marvelous press. The war made him. The net effect of such publicity was to impress on the public imagination the sudden appearance of a brilliant political talent. After the war, LaGuardia returned to his first love, politics. He won re-election to Congress in 1918. By 1925, 31 pilots had lost their lives flying the airmail routes. And the government had lost millions of dollars. That year, LaGuardia and other congressmen provided support which led to passage of the Kelly Bill, authorizing the government to contract with private companies to carry the mail. By allowing these companies to keep 80% of the mail fees, the bill also gave an enormous boost to commercial aviation at a time when there was almost no passenger business. The first contract airmail, or CAML, as it was called, a New York to Boston route, was awarded to Colonial Air Transport, headed by Juan Tripp, who would later found Pan Am. Fiorello himself was a passenger on the first mail flight from New York to Boston. The mayor's longtime friends, Judge Eugene Canuto and his wife, recall LaGuardia's early involvement with aviation. Way, way back when he was in Congress, uh, I remember uh, he had very close contacts with the Airline Pilots Association. Whenever there was legislation that had to do with uh, flying, uh, you can be sure that LaGuardia was very much in that picture. Uh, and, Did you uh, wear a little thing that said QB? Yeah, that's Birdman. right. He was a member of the Quiet Birdman, and he wore the little their insignia. He was very proud of it. Uh, he loved his... Uh, uh, or, or, or let's say he was very proud of his background as a flyer. The years that LaGuardia served in Congress were exciting ones for aviation in America. In 1923, two Army lieutenants, John McCready and Oakland Kelly, became the first to fly nonstop across the country. Three years later, Lieutenant Commander Richard E. Byrd and his pilot, Floyd Bennett, became the first to fly over the North Pole. In 1927, Charles Lindbergh became the first to fly nonstop across the Atlantic. When he came to New York, millions turned out to see the man who had become an instant hero. The city honored Lindy with a ticker tape parade. Mayor Jimmy Walker gave him the key to the city and told him, New York is yours. You have won it. When acrobatic steps and flying worlds were added to the most popular dance of the day, it became known as the Lindy Hop. While the role of honoring America's aviation superhero had fallen to Mayor Jimmy Walker, the role of turning New York into a national aviation center was carried out by his illustrious successor, Fiorello LaGuardia. The story of how he did it began in 1934, soon after Fiorello became mayor. 
1956 interview, former Vice President of American Airlines, Red Moshe, described LaGuardia's graphic illustration of the need for a New York airport. He was on a carrier uh, coming in from the Midwest with a ticket reading New York. The airplane uh, terminated at Newark. LaGuardia refused to get off the airplane. All other passengers were off, and the baggages were off, and he stayed on. He flashed his ticket and said his ticket said New York, and New Jersey was not New York, and that they had to take him to New York. Well, uh, thank, uh, glad that the carrier had sense of uh, knowledge of LaGuardia's forcefulness, because they debated it a while, and finally cranked it up and flew into Floyd Bennett and let him off. We turned back to Newark. The mayor's action had been a calculated publicity stunt, part of a long-standing rivalry between New York City and Newark to become the major center for traffic in the Northeast. During the 1920s, Newark had gotten the jump on its rival by building a modern airport.